The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, just wanted to be sure. Um, one of the things I feel like I have to constantly remind um, us of for lots of different reasons, and not just us, but lots of people everywhere, is that the Bible, when you open up the pages of the Bible from beginning to end, it reads a lot more like Game of Thrones than it does Veggie Tales. And if you're to preach the Bible faithfully and completely, sometimes you get to some text uh, that are reflective of that. So if you've got little ones here that um, might be better suited for today in one of our great kids' spaces, this is a wonderful time to avail yourself of that option uh, because the Bible comes to us as it comes to us. And we always want to be careful and deliberate about that. But I, I know just like um, movie rating systems, some of us want to expose our kids to some things at, at times we deem appropriate. So I tell you all of that. Uh, so when you send an email to me later, I can say, I told you so. Um, but anyway, as we open up our scriptures, uh, let me pray for us. Creator God, we're grateful that you love us and that you have called us into being and called us into a loving relationship with you. And we ask God that regardless of where we are this morning, how we got here, whether uh, our week has been good or bad, whether we feel anxiety and stress or whether we feel free and loved, that you would come to us now and speak to us. And speak to us in ways that we could see, know, and understand so that we can have a transformative encounter with you as we have through all of this worship. And we would pray, God, that you would show us who you created us to be in your world and how you would have us behave and who you would have us to become. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you, that you would bless the hearing of this word for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is kind of official, though, though you can't tell by the weather, that what most of us would deem as summer is over. Kids are back in school. If you've got young kids, uh, you know that you've, you've kind of shipped them off to school or you begin your homeschool regiment, whatever it is you do. If you don't have kids or maybe your kids are grown and gone, you've probably noticed it just in the traffic, the increased traffic that you're experiencing on a daily basis. And I have to tell you that uh, in some ways my summer was really good and in other ways it was a complete disappointment. And uh, as usual, I am responsible 100% for my own disappointment because I thought this summer that I was gonna have an opportunity to see a lot of movies. That's typically what we do in the summer in my family because we don't have a lot of time during the school year to sit down and do movies. And Rochelle and I love movies. When we were first married, we watched a lot of movies and then we had kids. And those of you who've had young kids know that one of the first things to go is going to see the movies. And then one of the second things to go is seeing movies that you actually wanna see. Uh, because they all want to see like Disney and animated and Pixar and all of that. And I always hated those movies, but um, I tried to at least be somewhat of a good father. This is how I parent. It's like I can do somewhat something good because I told my kids a long time ago 
that when they grow up, I will pay for uh, their college or their therapy, but not both. Uh, so you get to pick. You're going to need both, and I'll take care of one. Um, so I thought we were in this series this summer that Chris and I are teaching through movies, and I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just see a bunch of movies this summer, and then I'll kind of pick, because it's been so long since I regularly went to see movies, and then I spent the summer seeing zero movies, like none. And I even took a couple of days off a few weeks ago, and I thought at the beginning of that week, oh, you know what I should do with my time, this restorative time? I should go see some movies. And I saw none. But I was trapped by that point because we had already decided that we were going to do these movies over the summer. And over the last several years, I have seen very little, few movies, and I was out of movies that I had seen. I'm the guy every year, like when the Oscars come around, who fill out a thing, like who's going to win what, because my daughters really like that sort of thing. And I have seen none of the movies. Like last year, there was that movie where a lady falls in love with a fish or something like that. And I figured that will probably win something. So I just marked that and I was right. (laughs) And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me, I started to question teaching through movies, like whose idea was this anyway? And Chris will tell you that it was my idea. And I am fairly confident that that is not true. That this was not my idea, but I don't have a great memory. Like I tell people in all the stories that I tell, I don't tell you what actually happened. I tell you what I remember actually happened. And that's the way all of us are. I just fess up to it. But the more I thought about it, I saw the power and usefulness of it because the truth of my life and the truth of your life is that we all live by stories. Regardless of who you are, how old you are, where you come from, that you live by a story. When we get together, whether you play golf or you go out to hang out with the guys, you have a girls' night, whatever you do, When we're together, we share stories. Like we don't typically just show up with each other and give each other facts or points about ourselves, at least not outside of the context of a story. Like we don't just show up and say, yeah, I'm six foot and I'm 210 pounds and just kind of leave it at that. Like we wrap everything we do in a story. And right now in your life, you are telling yourself a story about yourself, that all of us are telling ourselves a story about ourselves, that there are a few events over the course of your life, maybe when you were a kid or a teenager, early adulthood, there's a story that got a hold of you, an event took place in your life, and and you piece that together with a couple of other stories, and that is what gives shape to how you see your world. The story you are telling yourself about yourself is why you believe that you are a success or a failure, why you believe that you are attractive or unattractive, whether you're smart or dumb, whether you're worthy or unworthy. And I know this is the truth of our existence because you've had events happen to you 
and when they've happened, you've said to yourself, maybe even said it out loud, you went, oh, this always happens to me. It's what writers call a framing narrative. It's the world that you build that every other story, every other event in your life fits into. And if it doesn't fit, we'll either find a way to make it fit or we'll say that it's just some grand exception. But right now, you are telling yourself a story about yourself. And so maybe one of the most important things that you will ever do in your life is just to get your story straight. To understand what story you're in. Because if you think that you're in a war story, then everyone who opposes you becomes an enemy to be defeated. And if you think you're in a comedy, then there might be some times where there are some serious things happening in your life and you don't take them as seriously as you should take them. If you think you're in a drama, and we all know someone who thinks they're in a drama all the time. If you think that you're in The Terminator, but you're actually in High School Musical, like you are going to behave differently depending on the story that you think you're in. And maybe one of the more foundational spiritual practices is coming to terms with what story you're in. So there's this great little scene in Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo um, are walking together and there's a lot of commotion going on in the book and in the movie around them, but they're at this moment of peace as, as they're walking. And Sam asks Frodo, he says, Mr. Frodo, what kind of story do you think we've fallen into? And your answer to that question will give shape and meaning and purpose to your life. What kind of story do you think you've fallen into? And I want to suggest to you that the Bible comes to us as one great story. And there are a lot of little stories in the Bible. There are even some big stories in the Bible. But it's one big story, and that's just the way that it comes. It's not a dictionary. You don't just flip it open and go to T for Trinity or S for salvation. That it's one great long narrative that God is telling. And further, I want to suggest to you that that story is a love story. That the story that you're actually in, the story we're all in, is a love story. And to do that, I want to share with you um, one of the more recent films that I've seen. And the title of that film is Loving. And Loving tells the story of these two people. This is Richard and Mildred Loving. Richard and Mildred uh, were married in the summer of 1958 in Washington, D.C., which created a couple of problems. Uh, the first is, as you can tell, Richard is white and Mildred is not white. And they got married in Washington, which was fine, but they lived 
in Virginia. And in Virginia, it was illegal for the two of them to be married. So, a couple of weeks after they get married, the local sheriff gets an anonymous tip that they've been married and they are now living with Mildred's family. And he, along with two other police officers, go to their house in the middle of the night, and this is what happens there. So as Richard and Mildred's story begins, one of the first things that they discover and that we discover as we walk along with them is that loving is hard. And, and not just romantic love, but all forms of love are hard. Love is self-giving and sacrificial. It's kind when it doesn't want to be kind. L loving means that in this circumstance, I don't get my way, and maybe in the next circumstance, I don't get my way, and maybe for a whole bunch of circumstances for a long period of time that I don't get my way. And one of the things that we forget because we live in a world that's really confused about love is that loving is fundamentally hard. And I want to be careful with that because I know that maybe some of you or maybe people related to some of you have been in relationships or you know of relationships where someone in that relationship has used the language of loving and told people that love is hard and love can be difficult and all of the, those other things, and they've used that language to just abuse the other person. And so if you're in that kind of relationship 
where you feel like you're in an abusive relationship and you're hearing that language from someone else. If you think you're in an abusive relationship, you probably are. And there are lots of people here who would love to walk alongside with you and to get you out of those relationships, to get you to a place of healing. But what I want to talk about uh, more deeply is this fundamental misidentification of love that we deal with in our culture that really believes and thinks and wants to share the idea that love is just all butterflies and roses and candlelight dinners and romance. Love is that we went on this great vacation and cruise together and all. And those things are great. Those things are necessary and needed and they're a part of what we do together. But that's not all of what love is. The truth is, like, we believe so many wrong things about love that we don't even know when we see a love story. So my wife's, one of my wife's favorite movies is You've Got Mail. And she has this Christmas tradition that on the night before Christmas Eve, um, after our daughters have gone to bed, uh, she gathers up all of the Christmas presents from around the house that she has bought all through the year. We spend about 45 minutes trying to remember where she hid them. And she sits down on the floor in front of the television with all of the presents and the wrapping paper and the bows and the tape, and she watches You've Got Mail. And this is just tradition. I don't try to fight it. We're just in it together, and I don't have to wrap any gifts, and I'm good with that. But the first time we saw that movie, like we were young, married, we saw it in the theater. And we're leaving the movie theater, and I take her hand as we're walking through the parking lot to our car, and she goes, oh, I want to fall in love. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm right here. Like, it's not like I'm someplace else. Like, but that's not a love story. Because listen, if the couple doesn't get together until the end of the book or to the end of the movie, that's not a love story. That's a longing story. And if there's someone in a relationship, in a book or in a movie, or if it's two people in a relationship and they just want to use each other physically, like if they just want to do their 50 shades, that's not a love story either. That's a lust story. A love story is when you have been married to this person for years and you are holding back their hair as they throw up. A love story is this child is driving me crazy and I will still do anything for her. A love story is about forgiveness and fighting and working it out and offering redemption and it's about the great highs of being in love, but it's also about the great struggles of working through love. That's a love story. And if you don't believe me, sit down with a parent of an adult child who's become drug addicted or alcohol addicted, and they don't know whether to welcome them in or to kick them out. Be with a wife or a husband when the cancer diagnosis comes and they're walking with their partner through all of the pain and heartache and expense of it all. Be with a wife or a husband who one or the other has had an affair and for their own reasons they decide that they're going to fight it out and save their marriage together. 
That's a love story. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that love is patient. And what he means there isn't that love is willing uh, to wait around without complaining while it takes her or him a little bit longer to get ready than you would like. Because the word that Paul uses for patience means long-suffering. There's a little story tucked away in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea. And God comes to Hosea, and this is one of those not veggie tale stories, not veggie tales moments in the Bible. And he says, I want you to marry this woman, Gomer. And so, Gomer, if, you've, if you're expecting a granddaughter or a daughter and you're making a list of names, there you go. <laughs> and he says, I want you to marry her. But the problem is that Gomer is a prostitute. And she's not just a prostitute. She's a prostitute who really enjoys being a prostitute. And over the course of their marriage, she gives birth to three children, and none of them are Hosea's. And she gets to the point where she just leaves And Hosea goes and gets her and brings her back. But listen to what God tells Hosea at the beginning of this relationship. God comes to Hosea and he says, Go and love a woman who is loved by someone else and is adulterous. Care for her and protect her just as I love the people of Israel, even though they're unfaithfully turning to other gods and selfishly eating sacred raisin cakes in their honor. Now, I know you have all heard the sermon about the dangers of sacred raisin cakes. (laughs) So we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But listen to what God says. He tells Hosea, go and love a woman. Now, this is earth shattering. Because this is a time and a place where people did not get married for love. Like, people got married as a business arrangement, as a social arrangement. As a matter of fact, the idea of doing what we do in our culture, where you find somebody and you fall in love and you hear the harps and there are rainbows and unicorns or whatever it all that we do, that that in the history of the world, that is actually very recent historically. You didn't get married for love. God tells Hosea, go love this woman. So whatever love is, it's not just all of the things that we associate with love. It's not just feeling great about one another. It's not just about candlelight dinners and date nights and feeling loved and supported as wonderful as those things are. That's the root of it. It's tough covenant work. And this is why I really bristle at the language of tough love. Because all love is tough. All love is tough. And what we do in our society when we talk about tough love, what we mean when we say that um, is I'm going 
to do something that makes life tough on you, and then I'm going to call it love. When the witness of Scripture is, because I love you, I'm going to do something that's tough on me. So here's a little insight into my family. And I, and I don't mind telling you because you got some messed up people in your family too. <laughs> so um, my parents divorced when I was 15. And maybe eight or 10 years ago, my dad got remarried. I performed the wedding. And as many of you know, when you, when you marry someone, you don't just marry that person, you marry the whole family. And so my stepmom has adult children just like my dad, and they have not always, her children have not always made the best of all possible decisions. And so for reasons that are outside of the control of my dad or my stepmom, uh, they are not able to take care of, her daughter's not able to take care of her children. So my dad well, began as a band director and was a high school principal and then a superintendent, and he's retired and he's 71. And as, at 71, he spends his days taking care of his wife's grandchildren who are two, four, and nine. My children are 14 and 11. And so when we found out about all this, I got my girls around, and I got Malia and Catherine, and I said, listen, listen, I'm going to tell you some things that are going on with my dad, and I want you to hear this really quickly, really clearly on this. Um, let me tell you what's not going to happen when I'm 71. <laughs> but of course it would, if it needed to. Because part of following Jesus is always rising to the requirements of love. Because all love is tough. Well, Richard and Mildred are arrested. And soon we find out why it was they were really arrested. And it wasn't because they broke the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. It was for a much more sinister reason, which we find out here when Richard talks to the local sheriff. Sit down. Back here trying to bail her out. You know they ain't gonna let her out, do you? Best send some hot people up here together because they won't let her out to you. But she, she pregnant. You shut your mouth about that. You know better. It's just not. What's that? You do know better, don't you? Ah, oh, maybe you don't. Your daddy worked for a nigga, didn't he? Hmm? Running timber? 
I'm sorry for it. Not really. All y'all over there in Central Point don't know from down, all mixed up. Port Cherokee, Red Hammond, Port Nina, Port White. Blood don't know what it wants to be. You just got born in the wrong place, is all. I see you got to thinking it was fine. You might think people around here won't care, but not me, you hear me? It's God's law. He made a sparrow, a sparrow, and a robin, a robin. They're different for a reason. Send some of our people up here on Monday to get her. And I see you trying to bait her out again, I'll arrest you. Well, um, in their story, Richard and Mildred pretty soon discover uh, that love is often opposed. And the reason that they weren't, um, the reason they were arrested wasn't because they broke the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. It's because this one sheriff decided that it might be okay with other people. It just wasn't okay with him. And so there's this reflex in all of us if we are open to admitting the truth and reality of us who always want to be the arbiters of love and the arbiters of what's appropriate, that every one of us at some point in our life have decided what is right, not just for ourselves, but for what everybody else. And what we forget is that God's love is expansive. That from the beginning of God's story with people, when he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, it starts just with Abraham, and then it becomes his immediate family, and that family grows. And you have the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have all of Israel, and God's love grows and grows and grows. But the problem is that the people in that family, they get it in their head that God's love is only for them or only for the people that they choose to. They, they get it to the point where they don't, even, they don't even want their cousins to be included in God's love. And then one day, uh, this baby named Jesus is born, and he grows up going to temple and everybody knows him. And there's a really weird story about his whole birth, but he's such a smart kid and such a good kid that everybody ends up liking him until he shows up at the temple one day in Luke 4. And then he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls the scroll and begins to read it. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord, the eternal one is on me. Why? Because the Eternal designated me to be his representative to the poor, to preach good news to them. He sent me to tell those who are held captive that they can now be set free and to tell the blind that they can now see. He sent me to liberate those held down by oppression. In short, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim that now is the time. This is the jubilee season of the Eternal One's grace. And so Jesus goes on from there and he recounts stories of people 
who were outside of Israel, who weren't part of the family, that God not only worked through, but that God loves. And, and his point is that all of this time you have already decided who's in and who's out, who's good and who's bad, who's acceptable and who's not acceptable, who's worthy and who's unworthy. And the whole time God has been expanding his love for other people, that God has been revealing that his love is expansive and includes everybody. And look how they respond to this. Because you would think that hearing that people were loved by God, that there would be folks like jumping up and down in the back saying, this is the best news that we've ever heard. That we can include more people in what God is doing. That God loves everyone, all of creation. But that's not what they do at all. What do they do? They try to kill him. And why? Because Jesus said that God's love includes people that they didn't want to include. And, and I doubt that 2,000 years later that we are just so sophisticated and so morally superior that some of that is not in us too. And you know it because all you have to do is turn on the television or listen to the radio or read the news and we are treated almost daily to a series of people who want to tell us that these are the good people and those are the bad people, these are the worthy people, these are the unworthy people, these are the acceptable people, and these are the unacceptable people, and why? Because human beings are fundamentally offended that God loves everyone. And we'd never say it out loud, but that's what that is. That we're really great at deciding that we are within God's love for whatever reason we decided that. And that the people who are unlike us or different from us for whatever reason, whatever arbitrary reason we assign to it, that those people are outside of God's love. There are some of us, not through our words, but through our actions and through our hearts, have decided that Democrats are outside of God's love. And there are some of us who have decided that Republicans are outside of God's love. And we would never say it out loud. We would never say that it's this race or that race or that nation or that religion. We would never say it out loud, but we believe it in our hearts because we are those people who use the language of those people. You know how those people are. Those people always. Those people never. And the story of God is that if you are a Christ follower, then you are caught up in God's expanding love. And if you are developing as a maturing Christian, you should love more people today than you loved last year. And next year, you should love more people than you love this year. Because from the beginning, God's love has always been expansive. Well, Richard and Mildred keep getting arrested. 
Uh, They move out of the state, but she decides that she wants to have uh, her children in Virginia. And so they come back to Virginia and uh, she's arrested again and they keep getting arrested and keep getting arrested until they finally land in the news media and they also garner the attention of the ACLU. And the ACLU uh, sues the state of Virginia and that kind of runs its way up through the courts until their case is heard by the United States Supreme Court. And, and ultimately, the Supreme Court sides with the lovings. And you know how all of that works. Once the Supreme Court makes this decision, it makes interracial marriage legal in all 50 states. Every June, I think June 12th, all over the country, there's a national celebration uh, called Loving Day. Uh, my wife and I have talked for years about having a Loving Day party, but that's June 12th, and my birthday's June 15th, and I've just decided I just want the whole week for myself. But what I want you to see at the end of their story is the night before their case is heard by the Supreme Court, when Richard has this final conversation with their attorney. You know, Richard, it's of course up to you not to attend, but you should know the Supreme Court only hears one out of every 400 cases. It's historic. Thank you, Mr. Cool. Well, is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. And tell the judge. Tell a judge I love my wife. So this, this may be both the best news and the hardest news of the Christian message. So when Richard says, just tell the judge I love my wife, he's reminding us of something central that we believe and we disbelieve. And that's this little idea that love alone is enough. That whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're dealing with in your personal relationships, in your family, in business, that the overwhelming witness of Scripture points to one thing, is that the problems that are caused in our world are basically caused by one thing, a lack of love. And that the solution has always been love. That when when God describes himself, he he uses a lot of things, lots of words throughout scripture to tell us about him, but he says, I want you to remember this, that God is love. This is the way that Jesus talks about it in Mark 12. Jesus says the most important commandment is this, hear, O Israel, the eternal one is our God, And the eternal one is the only God. You should love the eternal, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second great commandment is this. Love others in the same way you love yourself. There are no commandments more important than these. 
So what's the most important thing to do? When you're struggling with your parents or a spouse or with your children, when you're trying to work something through with a coworker, when you're facing a difficult decision, a difficult season in life, what's the most important thing that you can do? It's love. And no, I don't have the first clue what it is that you're facing right now. But I can tell you what to do regardless of what you're facing right now. And the thing for you to do is the most loving thing that you can think of. What's the most loving thing that you can think of? And I know that we all carry around with us a big bucket of, yeah, I know, but what about? Yeah, I know, but what about, but what about when she, and what about when he, and what about when they, and if I do that, then I'm not going to get ahead in business, and if I do that, they're going to, what, what about? Love alone is enough. What is the most loving thing that you can think of? And trust God with the results. And trust God that in this difficult time, that love alone will be enough. And even in the most difficult times, even if you're walking through a divorce or something really tragic that you wouldn't have chosen and no one would have picked for you, even in all the strife and contention of that, what's the most loving thing you can think of? Because the greatest commandment is this, to love God and love others. I want to tell you the truth about this movie. Rochelle and I were really excited to see this movie. We missed it in the theaters when it was there. And we were excited that it came on uh, Amazon Prime. And we planned this whole night. The girls were away at camp. We were going to watch it and have this meal. We could just see it at home. And we were excited to see it because we had watched documentaries about the Lovings. And I'd written about the Lovings. And we got to it. And this movie is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not terrible, terrible, but it is slow. I mean, it, there are times where there's like no music and no dialogue, and it's just people just walking around. <laughs> this is not a movie that you want to invite your friends over to see unless you really don't like your friends. And it's so slow. Like at one point, I got up and did the dishes, like during this movie. <laughs> and it wasn't until like a couple of days later that I realized what the filmmakers, what the storytellers were trying to do. Because Richard Loving was a construction worker. And at the beginning of the film, he takes Mildred out to this pasture and he says, I'm going to build a house for you here. And she's just overwhelmed with it. Those are the great lovey-dovey moments of love. But it just shows these scenes cutting back and forth every now and then of Richard working not on their house, but on other projects, just building a brick wall. And it's just a stack of bricks and some spackle and cement and him just laying a brick after brick after brick. And there's no dialogue. And you're just like, what is going on here? It was a couple of days later, reflecting back, that I remembered, that I realized what they were doing and how brilliant it was. 
because that's what loving is. It's the slow work of building something with and for the people you love over time. And so often, it's not spectacular or amazing, but all the time, it is building something together, brick by brick. It's back-breaking, hand-crushing work of every day going to work and building this thing. And in the end, you have something that is sturdy and beautiful that shelters you both. And so my prayer for all of us is as we leave here today, that regardless of what the relationship is or what the tensions are, that we would commit ourselves to loving one another and loving our world brick by brick. Let me pray for you. God, show us how to build it brick by brick, the world that you have created for us, the people you have brought into our lives, so that we can participate with you in loving the people near us and far from us. And we ask for your continued strength, God, to do the work that you have called us to do. And we're grateful for Jesus, who gives word and meaning and shape to what it means to love, to sacrificially and unconditionally love one another. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.